Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Sobe lives to ride another day. The motion brought forward by City Council yesterday. City Councilors Jason Farr and Maureen Wilson joined the show to talk about that. Former President Barack Obama addressed the protest due to the death of George Floyd. And Star Wars actor John Boyega appeared in London at the Black Lives Matter protest with impassioned speeches. We'll have some details about that. And was Canada smart to enact restrictions on the movement when we did? Sweden's top epidemiologist says, yeah, they missed the mark and you guys got it right. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Right now, I want to talk about one of the things that happened at the City Council meeting yesterday, and that was the Sobe bike program that uh, Council last week decided to put not one red cent into, effectively mothballing the program. I'm, they've changed their mind now because uh, there were some fabulous community folks that have come forward to try to uh, step up here, and they did that yesterday, and it looks like Sobe's going to be saved for the time being. I'm going to give you a couple of different perspectives on that in the program this morning, starting off with... Uh, War 2, Downtown Councilor Jason Farr, who joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Jay, how are you doing this morning? Very good, Bill. Thank you. How are you? Good, good. Uh, t- first of all, congratulations. You kept the meeting under 16 hours yesterday. That's not bad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, pro- yeah. that's, that's progress. That's progress. We've got to continue to give you guys credit where it is. Talk to us about, about what has happened with this program and the folks that have stepped up. Well, like you said, it was an 8-8 tie. It was very divisive, and it was a three-hour debate of a 16-hour meeting last Wednesday and then yesterday in a much shorter meeting that actually didn't start till noon due to technical difficulties from the electrical storm overnight. Uh, we had probably in less than an hour brought it back to life, and in fact, in a unanimous way. And as you have mentioned in your opening, the prevailing argument last week uh, that led to the defeat was we didn't want to use taxpayer dollars. There was two reasons for that under that uh, umbrella of evidence. And one was uh, right from the get-go, argued uh, the folks who won the debate last week, we were never uh, supposed to spend a dime of taxpayer dollars on SOBI. That's the way it was built. That's the way it was pitched. That's why we you know, uh, brought it into town and, and so on and so forth. Five years later... Uber pulls a backdoor deadbeat move on their contract, takes off out of the hammer six months before they were supposed to. We're left holding the bag in two weeks to deal with it, yet that was still an argument. The The other point uh, that was made was it's COVID-19. It's a pandemic. We have a potential deficit of $60 million by the end of the summer in this city. We're not alone, of course. Cities across the world are challenged. And so taking on new taxpayer-subsidized uh, programs was part of that argument as well. So I just spent the week with a whole bunch of other Hamiltonians trying to drum up money that wasn't taxpayer sourced, and uh, we did it. And so a unanimous decision to bring Sobe back, and I think a really good decision and one that a whole lot of people appear to be very happy about, though. Yeah, and listen, I, 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 let's spend just a couple of seconds talking about some of the folks that did step up, of course. And we, we know that uh, this whole thing really started when we got word that uh, Hamilton Bike Share was going to jump up with a, a donation uh, by the McNally Charitable Foundation. But other folks, too, like Leuna, the Royal Connaught, the Spalachi family, of course, Effort Trust, thank you to the Wise family, the Roxborough Park Development, Urban Solutions, and others, including a, a crowdfunding campaign that raised about seventy grand. Uh, so clearly there's an awful lot of people in this community, quite aside from the users, Jay, that think this is a pretty important program. Absolutely. I mean, we're a progressive city. We've been sub- celebrating a lot of uh, 
uh, progressive achievements over the course of the last decade that I've been on council. And, uh, you know, it isn't just in the lower city or downtown. It's our downtowns. It's all around. And, and we all reap the benefits of uh, what is uh, significant economic growth. I'm sure we're all thinking about a lull in that economic growth right now and doing all we can with the mayor's task force and everything else to mitigate the issues and, and climb back into a great economy when the time is right. But the reality is we've done exceptionally well. We, we're on the map across the nation, and it's decisions like, you know, the Canon protected multi-track bike lane, uh, bike share programs, you know, LRT, uh, the Keddie Trail, which was another big announcement yesterday. Yep. You know, doing the kinds of things that attract the young families, the young minds to make their homes here and invest here, and then everything sort of... It's reciprocal from that. You get the great foodie scenes and the great culture and art scene, and the city grows in a progressive way. So, so it's a sell. It's a huge sell, and it's an attraction. And uh, I, I think we made the right move, man. How difficult is it going to be then to convince your council colleagues that at some point in the future they're going to have to make some kind of commitment to this? Yeah, so some of my colleagues and I have been talking about that, and certainly that's been bandied about since day one. I remember talking to Peter Tafalovich, who's uh, – a uh, very uh, capable staffer with our bike share internally and uh, our, our uh, modal split to work that he does in transportation demand management. Great guy. And, and, you know, a lot of cities do that. And I've been talking about that. We tried to roll it into parking revenue four years ago, had those conversations and, and actually did uh, turn our parking office into something more of a just taking parking fees and fines and working with transportation demand management. Didn't quite get there with the SOBI monies, but we had operations. We had people from the outside operating at the time, so there wasn't the need. Um, clearly, we need to have that conversation, Bill. It, uh, along with a few other themes, have popped up through the last uh, six or seven days. And, and that's a good thing, I mean, because people have really recognized, number one, the importance of a bike share program in a mid-sized city like ours, but also uh, uh, the significance of making those kinds of investments in terms of, you know, environmental uh, uh, physical, uh, you know, all those positive means of transportation. It counts. It's just, it's up, maybe not. Well, let me ask you, a, let me ask you about bus, that point. It's, 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 it's a commuter vehicle. As you've been listening to the discussion and debate among you and your council colleagues, and not just within the last week, because this is not the first time Sobey's come up, is there an understanding there that, that a bike program of some description, and in, in this case, the one that we have, which seems to be wildly successful, is is a key part of an infrastructure and, and transportation master plan, and not just a little frill that some people think it is. Thank you. You just said more eloquently what I was <laughs> trying to say to you, Bill. Absolutely, and uh, so many more Hamiltonians. Those who don't even have the bike share membership, the Sobe membership, are aware of that now. It is a very significant part of the day to day travels, particularly for those within the footprint of Sobe's service. And, 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 and it's so much more than just a fun little tourism-y, let's go visit the harbor, uh, uh, program. And, and trust me, a lot of my, all of my colleagues and the mayor have heard from so many of those people who make Sobe part of their day-to-day -day lives in terms of transportation and getting around. Well, I, I, I guess they're hearing them. I'm not sure they're listening to them. We'll see how that goes. Jay, uh, congratulations on uh, pulling this one out of the fire, uh, as some of your colleagues uh, have done, and uh, hopefully this is uh, the beginning of a long and successful rebirth of this program. Thanks so much for the time today.
Absolutely, and thank you to Hamilton Bike Share Incorporated. You betcha. Ward 2 Councillor Jason Farr. Let me go a little bit west of there to uh, Ward 1. Uh, Councillor Maureen Wilson joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to give us her perspective on this. Councillor Wilson, good to have you back on the program. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing very well. Good morning. Good. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about yesterday and the reconsideration motion by some of your colleagues. Uh, I guess, Maureen, the thing that, that struck me when it happened, and we kind of knew this was going to happen because of the, the largesse of a, a number of people in the private sector who came forward in this, but this is really, let's cut this to, to the quick here, this is really a stay of execution, isn't it? I mean, it, you're going to have it for a while, but I, I don't see there's a commitment from some of your council colleagues to continue the program beyond this, and we're going to have to have some serious discussions about how that's going to happen. Well, that was the in, the intent. Uh, the intent of the original motion by Councillor Nan and Councillor Farr, uh, with money from uh, Ward One, was to provide that time mm-hmm. for, for staff uh, to come uh, to get together a proposal that would, you know, secure uh, the long-term health um, of a bike share program in Hamilton, which is the, the most successful bike share program for a mid-sized city in all of North America. And we know that, and I, I like to think, as I just said to Councillor Farr, I, I know that many of your council colleagues have heard that. I'm not so sure that they're listening to it and they understand uh, the importance of it. And it's not just, as you said, it's a, a frill. This is a major part of a transportation master plan that we need to work on like this. But I've got to ask you about some practicality here, because I watched some of the comments of your so- colleagues last week and, and yesterday, Maureen, and, and they're, they're adamant about, you know, we're fighting for the taxpayer, and not one cent of taxpayer money is going to go into this program, because that's what we committed to five years ago. Five years ago was an eternity ago. The world has changed. The economy has changed. Hamilton's uh, situation has changed. Uh, is it is it realistic to, to hold fast to something like that, considering the situation that we're facing these days? Well, I think it's uh, fair to say that cities are always changing, and if they don't change, they'll die. They uh, will lose jobs, they'll be less competitive, and they won't be able to um, attract and retain the kind of talent that we need. So uh, what we're finding is that young, educated talent and old (laughs) educated talent and everyone else um, relies on uh, different modes to get around. And bike share programs throughout North America, there's lots of evidence to support that they actually um, provide an economic bonus for cities. They're a more efficient mode of transit uh, and travel. Uh, They free up parking spaces primarily in your downtown. Um, There's lots of evidence showing that when you're on a bike, you uh, shop and you shop locally and you shop more frequently. So there's a whole bunch of reasons why uh, bike share programs work. There's a whole bunch of reasons why cities, smart cities in North America, pony up and put money into them and treat them as part of part of the transit system. And you're right, uh, five years ago was five years ago, and it's a new, a new world, and uh, we have to open our eyes and, and get on board or else Hamilton will be left behind. I mean, if there's one message we've received over this COVID crisis over the last four months now, it's that uh, we can't stand alone here. I mean, there's going to have to be government assistance to try to make some of the things that we count as important uh, to continue, uh, and whether it's going to be small businesses or whether it's going to be a transportation master plan. Yeah, well, I, I, yeah go ahead. Be, let, sorry, Bill. Let's be clear on something, though. Um, there is very few things out there in the public realm that don't get public assistance, and I think that's a failing on all of us, including myself, um, that we have to start... Uh, framing 
our investments in a more open and transparent way. I am not anti-car. I am not anti-road. But to suggest that we do not port millions and millions and millions of dollars every year into our road system that primarily supports one user, and that's the car. And that's fine. But that is a public uh, investment. We pour money into arts organization. There is not one sustainable arts organization that is not without some sort of public investment. And why do we do that? Why, when the Ancaster Arts Centre went from $12 million dollars to over $20 million, we injected more public money in, in that arts program, not because everybody will be able to attend. A lot of people can't. They still won't be able to afford it, but because it's a public good, because we can't, we know that arts enriches um, our environment. It also, in the end, makes us more competitive and attractive. Um, but we invest public money in everything, and I think what really smart cities do is when they invest they say right who's going to enjoy this and what kind of return on our investment because everything we invest in is a liability it starts costing us money the minute we put it down pave it build it it becomes more of an asset when it gives us a return when it enriches the land and the values around it when it makes us more attractive when it makes us more competitive, and that's the sort of framework. And we know, frankly, that bike share programs do that. Well, you know, and it's part of the 21st century economy and the way that we're moving forward. And I know I don't need to preach to you because I understand where you're coming from on this. I just think, and look, I spent nine years on council. It was a different time. I get that. But I understand a lot of the challenges these days. I keep up with this, just like a lot of the people in this community do, Maureen. And, and I think it's totally unrealistic that some of your colleagues are thinking, I want something, but I don't want to pay one cent for it. I want LRT, but I'm not going to pay one cent of taxpayers' money. I want a bike program, but I'm not going to pay one cent. They've got to get their heads out of their collective you-know-whats and, and, and start looking at the financial realism that we're facing these days and understand it's not about spending. It's about spending wisely, and, and they've got to watch where they're going to invest the money. And, and you've just presented an argument for strategic investment in, into transportation plans. And uh, this is going to get us to February. But what's going to happen after that? We can't continue to rely on the largesse of private sector to do something that's freely for the public good. That's wonderful that these people have all stepped forward. But if the city wants it, and by that I mean all of us, and the city council wants it, then they better be ready to make a commitment to it. Well, we were very willing to take um, the gracious donation from the McNally Foundation yeah. yesterday. Um, they are, that's a, a family with a tradition of city building. Um, and if we're taking their money, we should also heed their counsel. And in their letter to counsel, they said, um, our pledge comes with some recommendations for counsel's careful consideration. And I quote from their letter, our study of successful bike share programs across Canada and around the world clearly demonstrate that they demand a true partnership between local government, business, members, and the community in order to succeed and be sustainable over the long haul. So that's the wisdom that they're imparting on us. That is the recommendation. And I, um, they're very, very smart, and they've been around um, for a long time for a reason. And I think we should be heeding that counsel. 
Well, so do I, but when I see comments from some of your colleagues, like uh, some of us around the table are talkers, some are doers, that's engaging in petty politics instead of visionary politics, and uh, we got a long way to go. Maureen, thanks as always for this. Uh, let's uh, stay in touch as this develops over the next little while. Appreciate your time today. Thank you, Bill. Maureen Wilson, the counselor for Ward 1. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday, uh, former President Barack Obama addressed the protests uh, in a uh, webcast that he was uh, a part of. And, uh, well, it was a very positive message. It's about 15 and a half minutes long. We're certainly not going to play the whole thing. But this is, I think, the gist of of what the president had to say. In some ways, as tragic as these past few weeks have been, as difficult and scary and uncertain as they've been, they've also been an incredible opportunity for people to be awakened. Halfway across the world in London, uh, there were protests in the streets at Hyde Park and uh, by the Parliament buildings. Uh, One of the people taking part in that was uh, Star Wars actor John Boyega, who uh, uh, took to the megaphone and, uh, well, had some very, I think, impactful things to say. I want to thank every single one of you for coming out. This is very important. This is very vital. Black lives have always mattered. We have always been important. We have always meant something. We have always succeeded, regardless. And now is the time. I ain't waiting. I ain't waiting. Every black person understands and realizes the first time you are reminded that you were black. So none of you out there protesting against what we want to do, protesting against what we want to try and achieve, burn you, because this is so vital. Real passion, raw passion from John Boyoga and uh, uh, measured approach from Barack Obama, but I think uh, the, the kind of clarity and, and, and poignancy that we needed, I, I think, to hear uh, from a leader in situations like that. Uh, I want to bring Laura Babcock into the conversation, the president of Power Group, who I know was watching uh, as we were yesterday. Laura, how are you hanging in through all this today? Really well, thank you, Bill. Uh, you know, every day I think we all get up and we do our best. It feels like Groundhog Day in this COVID world, but... Certainly this past week, we've seen more and more, I think, stress added to the COVID stress that the world was feeling. So I think for a lot of people, it's been challenging to sort of, you know, figure all this out and process it. But yesterday's speech by Obama, just the announcement that he was going to speak to the nation at five o'clock. I think uh, a lot of people certainly wanted to hear a different perspective than what we've been hearing out of the Trump camp in terms of the state of America and how optimistic things may or may not be. So whereas the world was feeling pretty rattled, myself included, about Trump's decision to use the military against peaceful protesters, it was a, a terrible moment for American democracy. I think Obama's speech was helpful in repositioning the narrative to say, listen, let's get practical here. Yes, it's scary. Yes, it's been tough. But here's the way to change policing at the local level. We have a plan. We did the research. And these are what people should do. So so he really gave us a very, uh, Obama gave us a lot of optimism. I watched it with my kids because he talked about how the youth are the reason for hope and that they are they are very actively taking the kind of actions that are needed. So overall, I think Obama helps the world, really, to sort of think, okay, let's put this in context. What can we do about it? As opposed to just, Re, just reprocessing over and over those terrible images that we saw with those Black Hawk helicopters and all the rest. 
there's a, a certain element of, of, of frustration here because I think a lot of people, world leaders, and, and probably just ordinary citizens, Laura, have become somewhat tone deaf to, to Trump's threats of "I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that," uh, you know, "I'm going to bring the military out against the, the American people," and and that certainly created a dialogue for the last little while. But they figured, you know what, the guy's a blowhard, so what? Uh, so I, I, that, that's why the timing of this uh, I think was so important to have Obama come on and put this in place. And I sensed. I want to get your reaction to this. Almost an undercurrent of a previous message that uh, that the President Obama, that is, uh, was given to the American people when he talked about here's the plan to address these concerns about about responsibility and accountability at the local level. Not unlike what he said about COVID nineteen. The the current and, and I think the consistent message here was we had a plan for this. We looked at this and we've developed a plan. The current administration is ignoring it. What he's actually doing is a workaround around Trump. Yeah. You know, which is what makes and, it whose name, by the way, was never mentioned. Well, that's the whole thing. I mean, so George W. Bush has come out about this. Uh, so I, I think for our listeners here, Bill, most people would get the significance of what happened this week in the U.S., but just in case it's not abundantly clear, the U.S. military has never and should never, according to their constitution, according to their conventions, according to everything they believe in, uh, should never be turned on its own citizens, should never make domestic areas battle spaces, which is what Trump's team said on a phone call with the governors. They should not have generals in military fatigues like they had in that walk up to the church. Uh, none of that should have happened. They should not be turning guns on peaceful protesters. So what happened this week was such a breach of everything that America has held out as its values to the world and really what keeps it together as a nation that it was, it was absolutely shocking and dramatic and I'm not being hyperbolic here. And so what we saw from Obama, so we saw other presidents come out and make statements. We've now seen some, some generals come out and make statements. But what Obama did like he did with COVID, was instead of engaging in a battle with Trump in sort of this this going down low, right? Remember Michelle Obama, when they go low, we go high. He's taking the high road and saying, listen, America, world, there's solutions to these issues. Let's not bother with the current administration. Uh, let's not hope for them to fix it. Here's what you can do. Let me just tell you what the plans are. So we, I don't I don't remember a time when a U.S. a former U.S. president has sort of had to take it over leading uh, in in the very careful way that Obama has done it. But I think the world last night was like, okay, all right. So there there is hope here. We can change policing at the local level. There is a plan. You know, if we had a president in place who who didn't want to militarize the country, this is what they would be doing. And maybe it's what Biden will do if he gets in in the fall. But but I've never seen anything quite like what we saw from Obama last night on this. Well, and as I say, the timing was perfect, the juxtaposition of what was going on. And and we saw this and analyzed this over the last uh, three, three or four days, Laura. I mean, you know, when, when oh, Trump went down to the bunker and shut the lights off in the White House, I mean, let's face it, you saw the stuff on social media, you know, hashtag bunker boy, bumper boy, and basically saying he was a coward, you know, running away and hiding during a situation. And he saw that stuff. I mean, he obviously is very, uh, you know, aware of what's going on with the reaction to what he does on social media so what he did in response to that was he's going to show i'm a tough guy uh, i'm going to bring the military out i'm going to show you guys i'm going to tear gas innocent people on the streets so i can get a photo op across the street at the church this was him trying to show that hey i'm i'm the big guy i'm the new sheriff in town and it backfired on him of course and, and obama comes out and simply says we got this 
read this report that we did, extensive research with people from all over America about how to handle this situation. And here's my, what was it, a three or four step plan. He says, this is what we've done. This is what was recommended. And we started doing this, but you know, it, it doesn't even pick up again. So it's, it's, it's to say, don't feel as if there's no hope here. There is hope and there is a way to address the concerns that you're showing and asking for right now. And, and he actually drove them to the website and said, read this and, and tell us, you know, give us your response to this. Which is really unprecedented, as I was mentioning. I mean, the idea that they had a pandemic playbook that they handed over to Trump's team when they came in and Trump's team ignored it. And then we had to see Mitch McConnell reverse himself and apologize for saying there was no plan left behind by Obama. There was a plan that the U.S. doesn't have to be at 100, what is it, 115,000 deaths from COVID-19 and no sense of where this virus is going. And now there are these protests en masse and people might be trying social distancing but i expect that we're going to kind of uh, make the second wave of the pandemic occur even more quickly with people getting back on the streets in huge numbers so i mean they didn't the trump administration didn't follow the plan that was laid out and this isn't about ideology this is just about science right there was a plan for addressing this there was a plan for addressing policing uh, and how to make sure that policing stayed within the parameters of what American Constitution is supposed to be and how to ensure there wasn't the over-militarization of the police locally. These plans were there. And so what Obama has been doing is saying, listen, there are plans. It doesn't have to get this bad, right? Uh, but what I think is just so... It, it wasn't just about the firing the tear gas and, and uh, the rubber bullets because we've seen that in other protests. It was, it was actually having Blackhawks fly down the street and do propter wash intimidation tactics on American peaceful protests. I mean, that is insanity. Uh, and watching those images, it, it felt like the, like a terrible movie, uh, but it's happening. So all the all the the bloviating that Trump has done about I'm Mr. Tough Guy, he actually got the military to do things that they shouldn't have done. And 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 I think that people need to, you know, I've heard so many times Bill over the last four years, oh he's just talking, oh it's just talk. Actually, it wasn't talk this week. It was what many of us have feared would be the result of his rhetoric. And I'm happy to see that there's been some pushback heavily on the generals. And even the general who was in fatigue for that terrible photo op and for that walkover, uh, I'm glad to see that he has now written a letter saying, you know, essentially it shouldn't have happened. But let's let's be clear. Trump was in the bunker. He didn't like that he got pushback that he hid in the bunker. Uh, and so he came out and wanted to do a, a show of force. And now he's saying when he was in the bunker, he was just trying to inspect Piak, the bunker. You know, he's and he's coming out and they said they were just going to inspect a bathroom when they shot on those protesters. So, I mean, it's ridiculous how they are trying to spin out of it. And I'm, I'm hopeful that the world is going to hold them to some account. Like we saw the prime minister, Trudeau, when he didn't speak for 21 seconds, uh, he sent a very strong message of condemnation without saying anything in particular that Trump could assail. Yeah, and I know, and I know there's some pushback, but from the usual suspects, though, you know, that, well, he didn't know what to say and he was being measured. He's afraid to go after Trump. Uh, to what purpose? I mean, you know, if, if the prime minister or Boris Johnson or, or Angela Merkel or anybody else says, well, he's acting like an idiot again, what's that going to do? Uh, we know that already. What you needed to do is have a measured response and, and say, look, this is what we need to do. And before we start pointing fingers and saying, boy, these guys don't have their act together, neither do we. Uh, we've got to start looking at that too. And I thought it was—I thought it was a brilliant answer. I thought Don Martin in the National Post captured it beautifully, that he shut him down without even mentioning his name. And and uh, as as I think Obama has tried to do with some of the stuff that he's done in the last couple of days. 
Well, as soon as you invoke Trump's name, you put yourself into the mud with him. And you know that thing about, you know, wrestling a pig in the mud is that, and I'm not calling the president a pig, but the analogy being that, you know, only, you both get dirty and only one enjoys it. You know, and so this idea that um, they would invoke his name in these high level critiques is just going to turn it into an international back and forth fat on social media, which Trump loves and thrives in and, is, and gives him more support from his base and does nothing for these other leaders and their reputation. In fact, it takes them off point. So I thought very much so that uh, Trudeau both that pregnant pause. I mean, it was one time when his drama teacher pedigree actually worked, right? It was very dramatic. It was picked up around the world. People got to fill in that pause with their own feelings about it. And and how can Trump argue with silence, right? It, it was. I thought it was quite smart to do. What was also important, though, domestically, we have a lot of racism in Canada, uh, domestically, historically, uh, systematically. It's a real issue for us. How we treat our Indigenous peoples uh, was, in fact, we were chastised by the United Nations a number of years ago. So for Trudeau, with his own record with blackface, it was important for him to say, listen, I've learned we've got a lot to do. It struck a note of humility and not just saying, you know, we're better than the United States. So I, I thought so far on this, he's done well. Well, and, and to the point, I mean, for him to actually come out and do a personal attack against Trump, I agree with you totally, would have been totally uh, a waste of time. And I mean, them them that think Trump was okay and the truth, we already know that. I mean, if you think it was outrageous, you already know that. If You, you don't need the political leader to tell you what you already know about Trump's behavior. And I think the world is on to him right now, including uh, the world leaders in situations like this. So, uh, yeah, good on that for that happening. But what we're looking for here, and, and you've talked about this, and, uh, you know, there have been God knows how many editorials written about this over the last seven or eight days. We're looking for leadership. We're looking for that 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 comforter in chief to say, "Look, at we can get through this together." Uh, I know Biden tried to attempt to do that, and I think he scored some points with his uh, his comments earlier in the week about this. But you want the Ronald Reagan at the Challenger. You want the Obama after Sandy Hook. You want the Clinton after the Oklahoma City bombings. You don't want a president who's going to stand up there with a bunch of military generals and 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 dust people with you know with helicopters, black helicopters. That's that's not leadership. That's that's bullying. Well, two things uh, absolutely, and and it's dictatorial and it's terrifying given that they have the biggest military the world's ever had in, in the history of time, right? We don't want the, the U.S. military to become uh, at the behest of a dictator. Uh, but when it comes to uh, your a couple of your points there, I think what's really important in this moment is that all of us take seize on the opportunity with these protests around the world to say, okay, what can we do in our own societies to truly address these issues, to truly uh, look carefully at our at our policing and what we're doing around our policing? And you've seen there's there's a, a petition even here in Hamilton around police funding, right? It's about saying, you know, rather than just criticizing Trump, uh, we have to keep our eyes on him and we have to be very, very aware of this slippery slope, if ever there was one that's happening right now with this. But also we, we have to fix the problems ourselves. You know, it can't just be the distraction. But the other thing that I think is important is, yes, Biden got out from the basement. He got in front of some flags. You know, he got out to the memorial on Memorial Day. We're starting to see him do more of that presidential type stuff. Uh, but I was on a, a podcast yesterday, Bill, an international one with people from all over, you know, from the U.S. and from the U.K., and everybody started talking about how, you know, this is going to be the end for Trump. The way, And I said, actually, you know, the law and order agenda worked for Nixon after, you know, the, the uh, unrest, civil rights unrest. 
uh, it can work in the United States. It has worked. And I don't think any of us can be uh, glib about the idea that Trump has gone too far. Just now, he's he's kind of yelling on Twitter this morning, law and order. I mean, that is going to be his campaign. And that resonates with people. The more they see violent unrest or the more they see some people rioting, the more that that tells people, you know what, I'm the guy you need right now to keep you safe. So even though I agree with you that we don't want to see a bunch of military up there, uh, that's us. There are some people in the United States that find comfort in that when they see any kind of looting on their streets. Point taken. We've got about a minute left here, but I'm gonna, I'll, I'll finish off with the point that, uh, that Obama made yesterday that I think it, 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 it underscores the difference. Uh, 1971, Kent State, when the, the National Guard shot and killed so many of the students on the ca- campus of Kent State, and of course we saw the, the troops in the streets in Chicago during the 60th convention, and you're right, I mean, you know, let's face it, Nixon got reelected in 72 regardless because of this law and order. But that was different. The, the, the people that were protesting in the streets about the Vietnam War, about racial inequality, uh, were considered to be radicals by the overwhelming majority of the American public. It's not like that now. This is a different situation. I mean, the polling you've seen and I've seen in the last eight or ten days says the overwhelming majority of people in the United States and Canada agree that the protesters are doing the right thing these days. So We do, I, we do I, but wait until the Trump machine and all its money starts to take certain clips and run them and run them over and over on social media and build false narratives around it and Fox News puts everything they can behind saying that, you know, every American is at risk from these rats. They will try to build them. Oh, rats. sure they will, yeah. So sure I, think, I think we have to be cautious about that very insidious narrative, trying to change this uh, story and make it one that actually works towards a law and order agenda. Well, as you and so many others have said, too, don't think this, you know, just because of what's going on here that, that Trump is down and out, uh, because the, we said that the last election, too. Laura, always great to have you on. Hope the family is is well, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Thank you. You too. Stay safe. Laura Babcock, of course, president of Power Group. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are, uh, I guess, taking a deep breath after the first part of the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, you know, in some cases, we've flattened the curve. We don't really see the decrease that a lot of us had hoped to see at this stage. But it is time to, to kind of reassess how we've approached this and, and what we've done right, what we've done wrong, uh, when it comes to try to not just flatten the curve, but contain the virus itself, contain the spread. Was Canada smart to enact restrictions on movement, uh, what, which is what we did, of course, closing the border down with Canada-U.S. border to nothing but essential traffic, of course, and uh, closing uh, international flights to a certain extent? Well, Sweden's top epidemiologist says that that country kind of missed the mark and could have done a whole lot better at dealing and fighting with the virus, which has resulted in one of the highest death rates per capita in the world. See, Sweden did not shut down the country. As a matter of fact, they didn't even shut down the economy. They just said, look, we have very smart people here in Sweden. Their sense of duty will get us through this. Well, according to the stats, not so much. Uh, Joining us to talk about this is Todd Coleman. Todd, of course, is a Ph.D. assistant professor in the Department of Health Sciences at uh, Wilfrid Laurier University. Uh, Todd, how are you doing today? Good to have you with us again. I'm good. How are you doing? I'm, I'm well. I'm healthy, which is a good sign. We, you know, we're, we're doing what we're doing here, still doing the gloves and mask and everything, uh, and the self-isolation in situations like this. Uh, I still remember t- when, when the story was broke, broke rather, about what was going on in Sweden. And, and I think what made it so astounding to a lot of us was we saw what happened in Europe. We saw what happened in Italy, certainly, the tragic circumstance in Italy and France and some of these other countries and the rapid spread in the U.K. And we thought, well, these guys have certainly learned from this. Uh, it seemed to me as if they almost took this cavalier attitude that, well, yeah, that's over there, but we're, it's not going to happen here. 
Uh, and these were public officials, elected officials and, and medical professionals that were saying this. It was a, a, a different attitude, and I think it shocked a lot of us. Yeah, it, it, it sort of defied logic when you when you think about it retrospectively, and they're, they're indicating uh, pretty much the same thing at this point with seeing what's, what's happened uh, over the last few months. Well, and, you know, I don't want to point and say, well, boy, we got it right and they didn't, because I don't know that anybody got it right. But, uh, you know, because we didn't know a whole lot about this. And it was, uh, as I say, I think somebody drew the analogy, trying to fight COVID back in those days, and and only about four months ago, was kind of like trying to fix a car while it's running down the highway. You're trying to control it at the same time, figure out what's happening, what's gone wrong, and how can I do this? Uh, But to simply say we're going to be fine, when we saw the rapid spread in just about every other jurisdiction, you really wondered what the rationalization was for them to simply say, no, this is going to be life as normal, and we'll just try to be a little more careful. Yeah, it seems as if they were trying to balance uh, uh, what social life with uh, what the realities are of COVID-19, which seems to be that... They were going to rely on keeping a really close eye on what's going on, but letting things go on as normal. Uh, and we know that uh, even in countries where, where that was uh, uh, very clearly done uh, in more detail, uh, in China, for example, uh, it still went out of control. It, it, didn't, it wasn't effective in controlling what was going on. Which is, I, I guess, the takeaway that, that we need to get from this is is that uh, as restrictive as a lot of us uh, thought the initial measures put in place by governments, especially here in North America, were in some of these situations, uh, the numbers seem to indicate that, uh, yeah, it may well have been more than we wanted to see, but uh, at the same time, very necessary. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the the real strategy for something like this, for something that's really easy, uh, easily transmittable, uh, is number one, uh, social isolation. And that was just, they really missed the mark in Sweden on that one. Uh, and the second one is test and, test and trace is the next step usually. Neither of which they did to, to any great extent in situations like this. But uh, and again, I, I know we're kind of getting into the you know the the other side of this, into the weeds on this, the philosophy of this. But because we are as human social beings, uh, to suggest that well, we're just going to rely on people's sense of duty in situations like this. Uh, if there's a restaurant open and it's Friday night and you want to have uh, an evening with friends. Uh, there's a pretty good chance you're going to go to one of those establishments, a bar, pub, or restaurant, something of that nature. Uh, and you might think, okay, I better be careful, I'll wash my hands, etc. But it, it, that seems to defy what we already knew at that stage about how quickly this virus can spread and, and where you can actually pick the virus up. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I, I've, seen, I've seen it in, in uh, Canada isn't, in, isn't much greater in terms of uh, some strategies that we took uh, that were in complete uh, defilement of, uh, of what the scientific knowledge was at that point. But you're right, um, relying on people's own sense of duties, uh, if they're being told uh, or sh- have seen from government officials that it's not necessary to close, then they're not going to change their behaviors accordingly. Well, and we saw that as California and other parts of the United States started to open up. And I, I'm not suggesting everybody was thumbing their nose and, and defying this, but they just, we, we seem to have it as a collective uh, a mindset that, well, yeah, but th- that doesn't happen to me. It's going to happen to somebody else or it happens somewhere over there, but we're, we're good here. Yeah, until, until you actually see someone uh, or know someone who's been affected or infected, which, uh, 
what the numbers in Canada show, 93,000 at this point, uh, there's a high chance that you don't know anyone who has been infected with COVID. Um, and that really doesn't hit close to home. So the, the realities of this and the impacts of this don't really uh, result in too much behavior change because we're still all, a lot of us just watching this on TV um, from afar and not really understanding it and, and it's not hitting close to home yet. Well, because we apply our own filters to that, don't we? I mean, yeah. we we did see. I mean, I, I've talked to a couple of people that have survived it. Uh, we've had them as guests on the program, and, and their description of what they went through is, is just, it's frightening, really, uh, and and scary from their standpoint, because a lot, you know, the, the two of them were advanced age, over their 65th birthday, and they were both, both whether and whether hospitalized and whether or not they were going to get out of this thing alive, and thankfully they both did. Uh, but we saw this. We saw this played out on TV in the early days of the virus. Uh, Chris Cuomo from CNN uh, tested positive, started broadcasting from his home, and told us about how hellish this whole thing was. But I saw a number of, of, of posts on social media. People say, "Well, I don't like CNN. I don't like Chris Cuomo, so I don't believe anything he's saying." Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's gone through hell here, people. And, and, you know, it was, it was remarkable how people can just be dismissive of this because maybe maybe that's part of our human nature, too. We didn't want to hear it, so we didn't want to believe it. Yeah, it, 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 and it's a very drastic change from what we were like before this all happened, right? Like we took for granted that we could go out uh, every day and pick something up for at the grocery store or go to a restaurant or go to a bar and have a drink. Those kinds of things changed dramatically. And I think people are very resistant in trying to uh, uh, really come to the uh, uh, realization that it's not the same anymore. And uh, there are some things that really do need to change uh, from here on out. Let's talk about where we are now uh, in situations like this, because there seems to be, again, here in North America especially, that, uh, that okay, we've weathered the storm and, and uh you know, we, we okay, it's, it's going to be around for a little bit while, but it's just going to linger. But we seem to have knocked this thing to the ground. And, and I don't see any statistical evidence to show that that's really the case. Uh, as I think you and I talked about a week or so ago on the program, uh, for all these places that are opening up, uh, you know, the question I asked, and maybe it's just me, you know, being the cynical individual that I can be sometimes, uh, is you shut down May 5th or March 15th because of, of the spread of the virus. What's different? I mean, it's not spreading as quickly, but it's still spreading. Are you, do you feel more safe going into an establishment now? I don't, I don't know what the answer is to that. Yeah, I, I, I often look at the numbers and listen to the statements being made and wonder um, what kind of information they might have that the rest of us don't. Because from the numbers that I've seen, we're still looking in Canada specifically at uh, 35,000 active cases predicted. Uh that's quite high, uh, and the the the, tra- the transmission probabilities being so high with this in public spaces, I just I, I don't feel very confident. Uh, I feel more confident that they're getting a handle for it seems on long-term care homes, but the community transmission is still happening, and if that's still happening, that means it's still circulating. There's a really high chance that. Uh, if we just return to normal, people will, will will get infected. Well, because the people, or the countries rather, I guess, that have done a pretty decent job of containment uh, went to extreme measures. I mean, there were total shutdowns in some of the Asian countries mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and mandatory wearing of masks and gloves. 
Uh, and I know people say, well, we can't go there. And I know there's always going to be you know, exa- exceptions to the rule. We had uh, some of the folks from the McMaster study that was released the other day about the effectiveness of wearing masks. And it's, it's very insightful as, as you read some of the, the data that came out of that report. Uh, nonetheless, people are going to say, well, I just don't feel comfortable wearing it, so I'm not going to wear it. And, and I've seen, just anecdotally, you know, people going to banks, people going to grocery stores, totally oblivious to this with no personal protection equipment at all, as they figure, well, okay, I, I don't really need to do this anymore. Uh, and and I, it's almost at the point where some people are watching to say, don't, didn't you people get it? Have, are you not aware of what's going on here? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not out of the woods yet. No, we definitely aren't. Uh, and if we, if we, uh, it's really misleading for people to uh, uh, start thinking that things can return to normal uh, at this point. When, uh, especially with the the amount of, of uh, potentially asymptomatic people still circulating in the population, uh, and it just seems really, really misguided to uh, think that you could go back and do everything that you used to do. But we have, somebody described it as a fast food society. We want something now, Mm -hmm. right away. Uh, You know, I've got a headache. I want to take a pill that's going to get rid of it right away. I don't want to have to wait half an hour for it. Something fast acting, uh, quick action, whatever the case might be. Uh, Fast food. We want fast this, fast that. And now we're looking for a fast uh, way out of this. Uh, We want a vaccine, even though our experts are telling us, and you've mentioned this I don't know how many times, uh, that it's going to take a year, year and a half at least for, for something to be developed. And then then you get into the problem of distribution. Uh, people just seem to think that they're going to develop this thing by October and we're all going to get inoculated uh, you know, by the end of November and everybody's going to live happily ever after. I, it, we wish it could go that easily, but that's never the case, is it? No, it, it really isn't the case. Uh, and with something like this, there's so much uncertainty at this point that why wouldn't you rely on the measures that we've been doing already with the social distancing uh, and the test and trace components to really get a handle on this so that potentially we do drive the numbers really close down to zero uh, and have a really, really controlled handle of this. Uh, we can't really, we are the kind of, uh, of people who, who think that we can treat something very quickly with a pill or a vaccine or something like that. And that just isn't the case, uh, for the most part, with most diseases, uh, as we, if you start getting into the weeds about these things. Uh, and I think with this specifically, uh, we're not used to being told to change our behaviors rather than relying on the healthcare system uh, to, to fix a problem like this. Well, yeah, because we think that, okay, I'm going to do a little bit of this and I'm going to be just fine in a situation like this. I, we need a buffer, but we don't seem to want to, to, to go with the whole nine yards. Are you surprised, though, that that we seem to have changed our, our, our values when it comes to this? I mean, back in February, March, uh, you know, the Dr. Tams and the Dr. Williams here in Ontario and other medical officers of health uh, right across the jurisdictions in North America were saying, you know, we don't just need to flatten the curve. We need to go down, as you've talked about many times, uh, you want to eliminate this, at least you know, the number of, of new cases, get it down, mm-hmm. if not zero, very close to it. Uh, we seem to have given up that goal and just said, well, flattening it, I guess, is okay. Um, it seems as if they just kind of said, all right, we maybe set the bar a little bit too high. We can we can probably get by with this. But they, they don't really present any evidence to suggest that's why we can you know change the, those, those parameters. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be re- really much uh, uh, in terms of logic about whether flattening or reducing uh, the cases down to zero. They're really flattening the curve, while 
maybe visually, it's sort of we can see the the stark effects of what we've done in terms of flattening new cases. But that still means that we have uh, from day to day, we still have an equal or similar number of cases uh, going on in the community. It doesn't mean that we've we've really done anything in terms of reversing the trend at this point. So we we can't let our guard down in situations like this, and and I would think really at, at this point, when when you get somebody like the you know Sweden's top epidemiologist coming back and saying I, I think we kind of blew it, uh, mm-hmm. it, it kind of indicates that uh, you know the the laissez-faire attitude that they took, and, and it was a gamble, and you know I think a lot of us were watching it with great interest to see well maybe maybe they know more than we do. Uh, in hindsight now, they're saying, no, we, we should have been a lot more restrictive. We should have limited people's movement and, and limited uh, the exposure to this sort of thing, which really kind of underscores what you and other experts have been talking about for the last six months. Yeah, and it, it sort of it, it was very confusing to read, and it, it's very interesting from, from our perspective to see the different strategies that different countries took because they're, they're sort of natural uh, experiments in, in pandemic prevention. And with something like what happened in Sweden, uh, it it really defies what we've known for hundreds of years about disease prevention is to, with something that's so easily to catch like a respiratory virus, uh, is to isolate people from each other. uh, And then more recently, the, the diagnostic capabilities, testing and tracing, uh, it, they, they missed a really large piece of the puzzle in this, in terms of being able to really nip this uh, in the bud. But your point's well taken. That's a playbook that was already out. I mean, you know, we knew how, we didn't maybe know a whole lot about COVID nineteen, but we knew how to treat viruses like COVID nineteen, other uh, you know coronavirus that, that we had dealt with in the past. So for them to to basically shun that playbook was a little uh, questionable. I guess is maybe the best word here. Yeah, it was it was essentially confusing because disease prevention uh, in anyone who's in a healthcare field or, or health research, we know how to prevent disease uh, very broadly. Uh, those are the the first few things that you do in in trying to prevent uh, an illness from spreading. And for some people to say, "Oh, well, we'll do one piece of that instead of the other one," just seems really, really uh, illogical, and it makes me question people's motivations and uh, really their scientific credibility to a certain extent. Well, when they write the history of this, and I think some people have probably already started, that's one of the questions I think that needs to be addressed is uh, did we relax the regulations and are we moving forward on this simply because of public pressure and and, and the fact that we're all getting a little stir-crazy sitting around uh, you know, in our homes or wherever we are these days as opposed to actually looking at the statistics that indicate that we need to make changes. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think people uh, can tolerate certain uh, elements of behavior change for so long. And we're, we're social beings by nature, and it's getting nice outside, and we want to spend more time with other people outdoors and uh, in other social settings. And this is uh, can be really challenging for the ex- uh, going on for this extended period of time. Well, an, an interesting uh, admission by uh, the uh chief epidemiologist from Sweden uh, to suggest that maybe uh, we should have been more restrictive. And I think there's a lesson to be learned here as we move forward uh, with the the continued work that we have to do on this. Uh, Always great to get your perspective on this, Todd. Thank you so much again for the time. Uh, Stay healthy, and we'll talk again soon. Yeah, you too. Thanks again for having me. 
You betcha. Todd Coleman, uh, PhD assistant professor in the Department of Health Sciences at Wilfrid Laurier University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.